Welcome to the Not Work Storytelling Podcast. This is the show where we untangle our myths and reweave our stories, one ancient tale at a time. I'm your host, Marisa Gowdy. I'm a word witch, a writing coach, a story healer, and the author of The Sovereignty Knot, A Woman's Way to Freedom, Power, Love, and Magic. Mythology and folklore are medicine for the modern soul. Let's hear today's story and explore why it still matters. Before we dive into this week's episode, I'd like to tell you about Storyweaver Book Coaching. This is support for memoirists, thought leaders, and creative entrepreneurs at the beginning of their writing journey. You've got stories to tell. You feel like you've got a book inside of you. Before you can weave your visions into the chapters and birth this book into the world, you've got a lot of untangling and imagining to do. And that's where I come in. I can help you explore your personal experiences, get clear on your big ideas, and get clarity on what makes your book unique and compelling. I'm here as a sounding board and a thought partner. I'll ask tough questions and also give you a safe space to land. When it's time to start putting words on the page, I can be your trusted first set of eyes, and we can begin to craft your manuscript together. Learn more over at my website, marisagowdy.com. Let's talk and see if Storyweaver Book Coaching might be just what you're looking for. Season 2, Episode 9, Deirdre, Who is So Much More Than Her Sorrows. This week's guest is Melinda Laus. Melinda is a grief counselor and educator who understands grief as a normal, healthy part of being human. After the sudden and unexpected death of her late husband, Melinda learned that her healing was richer and deeper when she accessed nature and expressed herself through writing and photography. In addition to running a private practice in the Portland, Oregon area, Melinda is the founder of the online support community, The Nature of Grief. A note about the content of today's story. It does include a brief mention of suicide. I am so grateful to have Melinda here with me today to hold space for this story that I've written. It's a retelling of the story of Deirdre, who we may have come to know as Deirdre of the Sorrows. As is our way on the show, first we'll let the story speak for itself, and then we'll dive deep into why it still matters. Fado, Fado, when kings were kings, storytellers were storytellers, druids were druids, and queens were queens, which sometimes meant they rode in battle chariots, and sometimes they were sovereignty goddesses, and sometimes they were chattel traded from one royal male to another. And sometimes women who were destined to hold the queenship refused altogether, and that led disastrous results. Those kings, storytellers, and druids were a close-knit group, woven together by a love of learning, of the land, and perhaps a love of power, too. Depending on how you looked at them, these lads, because they were nearly all lads, as we can glean from the stories that remain, these lads were at the heart, or at the head, of society. At their gatherings, these royals, bards, and priests fit together like the stones of a castle. This was true even if the kings of Ireland ruled long before anyone built a castle upon the land. 
At their parties, they feasted and shared the gossip and generally did their best to keep their fingers on the pulse or around the throat of the realm. One particular evening, King Conqueror and his retinue settled in at the home of Felim, the most renowned bard in the land. This wasn't just a small meal for the king's closest advisors. It was a rip-roaring party. They did have something to celebrate, of course. Felim's wife was in the birthing chamber when the guests arrived, and the assembled company looked forward to toasting a new, healthy babe. Their revelry was interrupted by a wild, piercing scream and a long, unbroken silence. Everyone looked at one another, assuming a mother was lost in childbirth. These men were not monsters. They spoke in murmurs and filled one another's cups, keeping Felim's mug the fullest of all. It would only be a moment, they assumed, before the midwife came in and told them that this had become a funeral gathering. When the door from the inner chamber did open, they saw a smiling nurse announcing that a beautiful baby girl had been born to a smiling, healthy mother. The guests were cheered by the news, but that scream, what of the scream? Homes were small and communities close-knit. Everyone had been near birth and death in their time. No woman could have screamed that way and smiled. No woman could have screamed that way and lived. The nurse looked frightened as she was forced to report on the strange aspect of the birth she did not wish to name. It was the child. The child screamed like that while in the womb, but she was born crying silently with a sweet smile upon her lips. If the king was going to his leading storyteller's house for a feast, he was, of course, going to bring along the leading druid, too. Kaha, was known to be a gentleman as well as a wise one. He did not react with shouted questions and violent disbelief like the rest of the guests. He rose quietly and took himself to the great earthen walls of the Wrath, the ring fort that Felim and his household called home. Kaha was gone a long time, squinting up at the sky, consulting with the moon, and listening for the night bird's call. No one else saw what Kaha saw but they didn't need proof beyond the scream to believe every word he delivered when he returned to the great table. The child, the child, he declared in a voice as heavy as the air in a passage tomb. The child born by Felim's wife will be the ruin of all of Ulster. She was born with doom in her bones, a satchel of pain in her heart, and eyes that were made for weeping. Now, it wasn't Kaha who suggested infanticide. Another member of the esteemed company suggested they cut down the sapling before it could grow to a tree. Several men stood, hands moving to the sheaths at their belts. But it was King Conqueror who raised a hand and quieted his guests. There will be no murder done of innocent babes, not tonight and never under my kingship. I stake my honor and my sovereignty on that promise. Conqueror was a king who boasted he had the finest household, the finest advisors, and the finest army in all the land. It was a strange trick of leadership that, in the face of that most dire prediction from the most revered druid on the island of Ireland, Conqueror could respond with bravado and denial. The king called for more mead and drank to the health of the baby. He drank to the health 
of Deirdre, for Deirdre was this infant daughter's name. Conqueror called for Felim to bid his wife bring the baby immediately to be presented to her king. Conqueror took Deirdre into his arms and declared she would be kept safe from all foreign enemies and domestic conspirators. And when she was old enough, he declared, Deirdre would be his bride. By the power of his crown, his warriors, and his own matchless will, he declared, she would be rendered safe and harmless. By his choice and kingship, he would set the fates spinning a new story. He went as far as to swear by the sun and the moon that he would destroy any man who would dare threaten her fair head. Without asking Felim's permission or even learning his wife's name, Conqueror called on Levarachim, a renowned bard with a reputation as a wicked satirist. Levarachim was an unlikely nursemaid, but she could deliver the sort of poems that brought boils to a man's face. Ever secure in the loyalty of his circle, Conqueror assumed the old woman would only use her powerful verse to repel those who would harm sweet Deirdre. Fortunately, the woman who wrapped up the newborn baby and received the order to bring her to one of the king's many fortresses was kinder and wiser than one might think, considering her professional reputation and her affiliation with a king like Conqueror. Levarachim's heart broke as she heard Deirdre's mother weeping. These were the first of many tears shed over this ill-fated girl. But Levarachim believed she could do more to help the child and the kingdom of Ulster by working within the system, so to speak. She knew her protection was worth more than the oath of a king or a thousand armed men at the door. And so the years passed. Deirdre grew up to be as bright and beautiful as the archdruid foretold. She also grew up ignorant of the weight of the prophecy and the weight of her mother's pain. Like a Rapunzel held captive by a kindly Dame Gothel, Deirdre knew only the dim rooms and the small gardens within the high walls of the fort. Deirdre scarcely knew a world beyond these walls existed, and she barely knew the world was populated by more than Levarachim her elderly tutor, and King Conqueror himself, who took his role as guardian quite seriously. Well, at least he did until Deirdre was deemed old enough, and he began to take on the role of suitor. Yes, Deirdre was as far from worldly as you could imagine, but she knew enough about what she did and did not want, and she knew she did not want to marry a man with gray in his hair and great grooves in his cheeks. She had never seen anyone her own age, but she had seen her own reflection and understood youth and beauty. Plus, Lavarakum was a great storyteller and couldn't keep herself from spinning out the occasional romantic tale. The more determined Conqueror became to make Deirdre his bride, the more she seemed to fade. Her steps slowed, her laughter faltered, her smile diminished. She started to look like an age-appropriate wife for this middle-aged king. Abandoning the lovely walled gardens, Deirdre took to staring out the single window at the front of the fortress. In part, she looked out so she could see if the king approached. It was her habit to run to bed and feign sleep or sickness in order to shorten her time in his company. She also looked out the window because she was certain that there was something out there for her to see. 
This was a wild prayer, considering that the only window she had offered her a view of nothing but the sky. It was the proper height to see clouds, birds, and the top of the king's standard as his retinue approached the gates. One cold, wintry afternoon, when the sky was a low pewter heavy with snow, Deirdre looked out the window as usual. A raven flew across her narrow stretch of sky. In that moment, an arrow pierced the bird's breast, and the raven valiantly spread its wings one final time before gliding with painful grace to the earth. Deirdre rose from her moody window seat and rushed to the back garden. There, the raven lay bleeding in the snow. She screamed and fell to her knees beside the dying bird. Lavarachim heard her young charges scream. Oh, another scream. And she rushed after her. Now, now, pet, said Lavarachim. It's just a common raven and unworthy of your tears. They've been a nuisance around the fort for some time, and the king's men were here to cull the flock. Even as the words were spoken, Lavarachim squinted up to the skies and offered a silent prayer for forgiveness. To kill the birds sacred to the goddess Morrigan and her sisters was a risky business, especially for a king who willfully courted a reluctant young woman who was destined to bring ruin upon the land, and Lavarakim knew it. Again, she chose to stay silent and keep the wicked world from Deirdre's door with her version of love and silence. But Deirdre would not be soothed by her nurse's soft words and softer hands. Deirdre stayed there in the snow as the raven drew its last breath and then dipped a finger in the blood. She tasted it and her screaming stopped. Deirdre's voice was low and still and seemed to come from the depths of the oldest cavern. Lavarachim, leave me to my mourning. This bird is worthy of my tears and more. As frightened as the old woman was to see the blood on her lovely girl's lips, she could see no harm in letting her hold vigil for the poor creature. Lavarachim knew the ways of the young, their fascination with the strange and gruesome, and that innocent desire to play at death. She left Deirdre to her cogitations and did not return until the day had nearly frozen into night. Holding a torch high, she reached out her hand to Deirdre and then gasped at what she saw. Skin as fair as the snow, hair as dark as the raven's wing, lips as red as blood. That's just how my beloved will look when he comes to call for me. Deirdre had fashioned a head from the snow and arranged the feathers for hair. The mouth was a well-formed gash of crimson. It was so cold, the figure did not melt in the young woman's embrace. After so many years of playing reluctant jailer, something thawed in Lavarachim. Perhaps it was the way Deirdre's depression had given way to mad grief and then to this still unsettling certainty. Lavarachim suddenly saw Deirdre as more than a cosseted child. Lavarachim caught a glimpse of the power within Deirdre, the woman. This power within her would be enough to unmake a kingdom. And in that moment, all the ambivalence fell away. Lavarachim's loyalty could no longer be divided between king and girl. Acting as the monarch's handmaid, Lavarakim could never secure real safety and happiness for the young maiden before her. Lavarakim would not let an old man take Deirdre to his bed and use her as a pawn to outwit the gods. She knew that regardless of his royal pronouncements, the powers of heaven and earth wouldn't be thwarted by one king's hubris. 
And so, the Varachim made her own pronouncement, for she was a bard herself and every bit as powerful as the king's favored Felim. It is Nisha, the eldest son of Ishlu. He has skin as fair as the snow, hair as black as the raven, and fine lips that ought to be used for more than battle cries. He is the finest with a spear and sword as any man in the king's army. The icy set of Deirdre's expression softened. It was as if her heart awakened in her breast, truly for the first time, and sent golden rays through her fingertips. The light danced across her face. Now give me that quick, my girl, said Lavarachim. She already felt a tongue of regret licking up her throat, and she didn't want to see the sculpture melt in Deirdre's arms and make the dream a nightmare too soon. You have no need of this now. Now we know the man himself. You can trust he will find his way to you. You'll know him by his fine tenor voice, as well as his jet black curls. He may have the thatch of a raven, but he has the voice of the sweetest songbird. And so Deirdre went to bed with hope rather than dread in her heart for the first time since Conqueror had stopped pretending to be father to her. She sat beneath that high window every day, straining to hear the voice of her own true love. We may ask if this is just another fairy tale about another foolish virgin waiting for her true prince to come. But remember, those young women who we might dismiss as hopeless romantic heroines were also seeking something even more powerful than a first kiss. The heroine in the tower is seeking her freedom and her chance to become a sovereign being who can create her own relationship with a lover, with the land, and most importantly, with herself. At last, as the snows began to give way to the first snowdrops of the year, Deirdre heard the song. The pure, rich voice sang of swans on the wing and oceans full of fish, herds of rich cows and strong brothers in arms. He did not sing of love. And Deirdre took this as a sign that his heart was still open because he did not sing for what he did not know. She knew him, however, and she cried out his name three times. Lavarachim heard her call, though she was in the far back garden amongst the hens. Her blood flashed cold, just as it had the night Deirdre was born, and made that one piercing shriek while still in her mother's womb. Lavarachim imagined the rose-gold look of love in the girl's eyes, and then set her attention back to the chickens. Lavarachim had played her part to put these events in motion. She had chosen the girl's joy and sovereignty. The story would spin itself out. When Deirdre set herself beside that single high window at the front of her fortress home, she only ever had eyes for the sky above. She'd paid no mind to the old stack of weapons beside the door that was only ever open to welcome the king. This day, however, her eyes fell on a short, thick spear and she instantly knew how to put it to use. The walls of the fortress were thick, but made of soft enough earth. She drove the spear into the turf, grunting with effort even as she called her beloved's name. He caught the other end of the spear, and they worked together to widen the gap until she could slip out to stand beside him. A moment of rebirth, her first time beyond those walls in nearly two decades. Finally, they came together underneath the limitless sky, 
It was everything a star-crossed, love-at-first-sight story could be as he swept her into his arms without a care for who might see. Fortunately, it was Nisha's brothers who came over the hill and caught sight of the couple entwined beside the ruined fortress wall. They knew the prophecy. Every warrior who might die and every woman and child who would mourn them knew the prophecy well. And so the brothers rushed at Nisha and Deirdre and pulled them apart, speaking in harsh, desperate whispers. Are you mad? You know who this woman is. Woman, you know who you are. Would you have us all killed with a kiss? The couple had used the spear to unite them. They would not be separated by fear of what a spear could do. Deirdre wept, but was immovable in the rush of her own tears, for that was her nature. Nisha stood firm and held her tighter, for that was his. The sons of Ishlu, Ardan and Anla, looked at their brother Nisha. For the love of their brother, and from the same understanding that inspired Levarachim to act as ally to young love and freedom, rather than to the throne and control, they quickly agreed. The lovers simply had to get out of sight and prepare to travel. Immediately. Nothing good could come from standing out in the open where any arrow could strike young Nisha down like a raven in flight. And so, Deirdre and Nisha, along with their allies Arden, Anla, and Levarachim, set off for Scotland, where they hoped they would be free of Conqueror's wrath and the Ulster curse. For a time, the vast green glen in which they made their home was a paradise. Deirdre and Nisha walked hand in hand through the bluebells and held each other close as the spring constellations took shape. They were so close, there was only room for hope between them. They were woven into a story that had all the elements of an epic romance and an epic tragedy, but their actual union was as sweet and narrow as any that happens when two new souls discover what it means to see yourself reflected in a lover's eyes for the very first time. Neither of the brothers was the jealous kind, and they happily sang songs of full fishing nets and fat herds of cattle. Lavarachim felt her heart expand as she had four to care for, not just one. She returned to her bardic arts, composing poetry about the moon and the grain, now that she too was finally free of the royal enclosure. But even in Scotland, it seemed that kings were kings and lovers weren't necessarily free to be lovers. News of Deirdre and Nisha's arrival and subsequent idyllic happiness caught the attention of the King of Scotland. He got to thinking that since Deirdre was destined to be a queen, and he happened to have a crown to share, and since there was no ring on her finger or army at her back to stop him, he would take her for his own. What was good enough for Ulster was good enough for Alba, after all. As is the way with kings who have trouble within their own house, Conqueror refused to allow another king to meddle in his affairs. When Conqueror heard that the Scottish king was coveting the woman he'd already lost, he could no longer pretend he didn't care that she had jilted him. He sent emissaries, inviting, entreating the young couple, the warrior brothers, and the wise woman Bard to return to his court once more. Conqueror promised Nisha and his brothers safe passage. It was intimated that they might even be offered forgiveness. Perhaps, our exiles thought, perhaps our king is revealing himself to be a good king. Perhaps ours is a true sovereign. Perhaps 
they could find a way to thwart Ulster's doom together. Another banquet was organized. A prodigal feast was to be held in honor of the exile's triumphant return. And then a bloody battle ensued. Alas, Conqueror was not a changed man, and he had not forgiven Deirdre and Nisha's betrayal. The art of hospitality and the keeping of an oath. These were the most important values of Irish life and sat at the heart of right rulership. Conqueror eviscerated those values when he wove a web of wicked tricks to get his soldiers to attack their brothers in arms, the sons of Ishlu. Noble warriors were caught in impossible binds, forced to break their word and strike down their dearest comrades. Unarmed guests, including women and servants, were killed. Deirdre watched in horror as Owen, a lesser king who had always been a sworn enemy of Conqueror, struck Nisha down. Owen carried Deirdre off to the nearby fort where Conqueror waited. The high king had no desire to watch his mercenaries murder members of his own royal guard, and he had not attended the banquet. He simply sat on his throne drinking mead. And he sat on his throne drinking mead for the next year while Deirdre was again his captive. She never smiled. She never laughed. She only raised her eyes when her grief gathered itself into rage. The white the black, the red, your warriors scattered and divided, my lover, his brothers, dead, my own sweet nurse, Levarchem, sent away from me forever, the mother and father that, because of you, I never knew, the blue of the bluebells, the green of that Scottish glen, your courtiers murdered, your army shattered, my lover, his brothers, dead, the white, the black, the red. The king tried, in his way, to wait out her grief and withstand her rage. He still held the delusion that all was not lost and that securing this woman's love would restore all that had been torn asunder. He hoped that loving her would avert disaster. But, after a year and a day of playing witness to Deirdre's laments, he lashed out. Tell me, woman, who is it you hate most in this world? She raised her eyes, and they were white and black and red with rage. You, of course. And Owen, the butcher who cut down my Nisha and ripped my own heart from my breast with that one brutal blow. By your word, my lady. And so... Conqueror sent for Owen and bid him bring a chariot large enough to carry two. She is yours for a year, Owen. I cannot bear another day of her tears, her blame, her shame. Take her from my fort and keep her till long after your own ears bleed with the keening. But return not for a year and a day. Deirdre wept in silence as she climbed in beside that other man she most despised. Owen gave her a sideways glance and offered a nod to the king before he lashed his horses to a gallop. He only looked at Deirdre again when her body lay crumpled upon the ground. A great white boulder beside the road was red with her life's blood. 
she had struck her head against it rather than endure a year in this low king's court, rather than endure another day without her true beloved. And a raven flew overhead and dropped a single feather where the most beautiful, ill-fated woman Ulster would ever know lay dead. The white, the black, the red. And with that, our story ends and our conversation begins. So Melinda, thank you for sitting with me through this and holding space. Of course, holding space for the most difficult stories is one of the things that you do best. So mm-hmm. I knew that I had to call this story and your healing magic together in one place. So thank you for being here. Wow. Well, thank you for having me. It's such an honor. I'm just so moved by that story of tragedy after tragedy. I've read it a few times in, in knowing we would be coming together to have this conversation. And there, it's just so many layers of pain and loss, tragedy. And what really leapt out at me this time too was the power that was held over her, mm. the helplessness yeah. that she was born into this life that because of despots all around her that were determining her future, there wasn't a lot of hope. Yeah. And yet she held on to that because that was also her birthright, which I think is one of the things that draws me to her story is that as I mean, this is Deirdre of the Sorrows. This is the greatest tragedy in the Irish canon. Mm -hmm. And yet, why is it I've been working with the story for well over 20 years? Why do I keep getting called back to what in so many ways is is the the Celtic Romeo and Juliet? Mm -hmm. And that reveals such darkness of human nature. Mm -hmm. And that's why I knew I had to give them hope. Because what else Mm -hmm. was that other than to decide you could cut a hole in your own prison and fall in love? When I was saying that there there was hopelessness, that that was all around them. But yes, Deirdre's own heart. And Nisha said, eh, we know that story. We're going to do the love thing anyways. That there was paradise that they still found. Yeah. Yeah, it's so... Moving, and I think that there's also something beautiful about her unapologetic. Is the story was shared? She's not saying, "I'm so sorry, I'm a tragic figure. I'm so sorry, I was born under an ill-fated sky. I am Deirdre, and I'm going to suck the marrow out of the life that I've got and get what is possible for hope, for love, for joy. Because it really it comes down to it seems human folly." was really to blame. I was curious that the the druid in the telling at her birth of the, the tragedy to come, there wasn't a, but if you this, then that. There was no way around it. Like other fairy tales and stories of myth that, you know, involve an off ramp. <laughs> yes. And it's the ultimate self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Is that mm-hmm. that kind of essence of conqueror heard that this girl, this new baby was gonna be the ruin of his kingdom. And he essentially doubled down and said, okay, hold my beer. And 
Because it was him who set these events in motion. And right. as I've told you before, you and I started recording, this story of Deirdre is one of the pre-tales to the Toynbulkunya, which is the greatest Irish epic. It's the story of a cattle raid. It's the story of Queen Maeve and Cúchulainn, the biggest figures in Irish mythology. Mm-hmm. So when we say that this story puts in motion this Ulster curse, this sense of the undoing of the kingdom, there's a lot more and then and and then and and then, but it begins with this great betrayal and the murder of the sons of Ishlu. So, mm-hmm. and again, there is that question because I played with that too as I was doing this is it's the will of the gods and that's where prophecies come from. And yet it mm-hmm. was like nothing but human choice that came and made this all happen. Right. Which is, of course, the greatest tragedy of all. Mm. And I I think, isn't that the sky we all live under? That there are things that can be foretold and then there's the folly of our own choices that trying to to live, to follow the path of the happily ever after, that's maybe a hope that lights our way. And yet we live in these lives with human frailty and folly, with cruelty, with despots with queens and kings. And there's also this place that, again, I'm so fascinated to go back to that place that she was sort of, Deirdre, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's all tragic and terrible and lightning bolts and blah, blah, blah. But there's this guy and I can't wait to hear his voice and fall in love. So I love the incredible dichotomy of these experiences of humanity and spirituality that that just put us into places of of struggle, growth, pain, redemption. I think too that there's doing so much work in the world of grief and loss that her presence just is such a tragic figure. Mm -hmm. There is something calming about, again, there was no apology about, oh, here I come in my little clouds of gloom and doom. It also, her vision for me holds as a young widow, there's also this fear that I'm remembering and connecting in with it. I hope I'm not seen as only a tragic figure, which I think so often for people going through intense loss and tragedy, it's sort of a yes and that we we need to be seen for experiencing what we are in the space of tragedy and trauma and loss. Mm. There's also this place that we, want to be seen as whole, able to laugh, capable of more than just our tragedies that we carry. Yes. Oh, Melinda, I'm so grateful that you sort of segued into yourself and your work. And I would just love for you to tell our listeners a bit more about your story and who you are as a holder of space for grief and for healing. Sure. I came to the work of grief and loss after the sudden unexpected loss of my husband, David. David died when he was 31. It was a gorgeous sunny day in late June in 2003. And we had just had our second child was only 20 days old. Our oldest was all of two and a half. And David's death is so wrapped in a bit of mystery that technically there was no cause, but after doing the work with the medical examiner and everyone else, it was determined that it was a, a what they call a fatal arrhythmia. His heart just stopped. 
but there is kind of that fate of there was nothing anyone could do. I know in the moment when I got the, that terrible fate-filled call that he had collapsed, that my sense was just get to the hospital because the hospital can fix everything. Mm. Doctors can fix everything. Mm. Yet I kept telling everyone, yes, but he's only 31. You know, as if there was this, those things don't happen to me. So prior to David's death, I lived a very charmed life, a beautiful life. We were desperately happy together, had healthy, beautiful babies. So, so this was truly on so many layers, a, a death that I was a tragedy. I was completely unprepared for. Mm-hmm. And on the way back from the hospital after David had died, I told my mom, I will not make my life just about grief. I will not let this be the only thing. And boy, have I learned a few things since then. My life has so much more than just grief in it, but I have learned through these many years that our grief stories, our losses, we can't lose and have grief over something we don't love first. So there's always that woven bittersweet that when I grieve, I'm also touching love. And certainly there's pain, there's the challenge, the terribleness, but I've also learned to look for that golden ray of the love that I'm remembering through the pain and through the loss. So I, since having this experience, I read everything I could. I worked with counselors and and spiritual guides and intuitives and have just devoted my life to being there for other people who are experiencing loss. Mm-hmm. I've kind of fashioned my life to, to become the person I needed 10 years prior. So that has led me down this path to be a, a space holder and a supportive presence for folks who are experiencing grief and learning to live after loss. Mm. Oh. Linda, thank you for sharing your story. Every time I hear it, it hits a new, there's the the nature of those true stories that cut us through the bone and remind us of what we've lost and of our fears that we still carry. And what I notice in this too, is that your love with David was young love in so many ways. And that, you know, as I was telling Deirdre's story, it's like, oh, wow, it does feel like going back in time to talk about first love and that, you know, young blush of things. Mm -hmm. And there's a sense of permission giving in that to say, right, that's still a really important aspect of our experience, even though we may be decades beyond that and life becomes so much more about keeping the marriage going or this and that. Mm -hmm. And both Deirdre's story, but so much more importantly, your story of that being present with that kind of love you had then forever mm-hmm. is just something that touches me every time and just makes oh. me pause. Oh, thank you. <sighs> yes. And it, you know, as you're sharing that, I'm, I'm thinking about the, the passage in the story about their hope. Well, maybe, mm-hmm. you know, and for me, I guess that moment, I see a parallel with my maybe we'll get you to the the hospital and it will all be okay. Right. How do we live with such wide swings within our own hearts? Right. And yet we do. And that's Mm -hmm. the mysterious nature of the human adventure and calamity. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> resilience to come back from that and to be in all those different spaces. Yeah, absolutely. So when I wrote this story, I know every time I write a story, I'm always very aware of the fact that it's never just an ancient story. I know absolutely nothing about being a Celtic or pre-Celtic person from thousands <laughs> of years ago, or nor a Christian monk who would have written this down, which is why we have these tales. But I'm right. always aware of the sense that we tell these ancient stories in order to deal with these really in small and intimate things like love and death. And we also write about them in order to engage with the bigger things. And you use the word despot a couple of times. Mm -hmm. And I definitely <laughs> was thinking about a certain former president when I wrote my Conqueror. <laughs> and I was also thinking about the queen who had just died right when I was writing it. But you brought up the sense that it made you also think of Princess Diana. Yeah. Of such a tragic figure of our age. Mm -hmm. So I'd love to go there a little bit more with you and see what else yeah. you're thinking. Well, it was because you had mentioned like, oh my gosh, what a week that we're, I'm writing the story and connecting with the retelling of the queen and the stories within Deirdre's experience and the queen died in the last week. And yet what was really present for me was more the tragedy of Princess Diana's life, mm -hmm. that a young princess who had fallen in love and, and made a different choice outside was the edict and the law and the allowed, she went against the despots and she died tragically. And we could spin for forever on the conspiracies and the da 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 da. But at just the bottom line that my heartfelt connection to the beautiful, beloved Princess Diana dying too young and in this way that did seem to 1000% include human folly. Mm. and could have been avoided, could have been handled so differently that she might still be with us today. Right, right. And that looking at the individual human stories and the individual human hearts that we can obviously imagine in Diana's story, just as we imagine them in Deirdre's story, because mm -hmm. both are equally as fantastical, regardless of how many decades or millennia separate us from them. Mm -hmm. But then there's that sense of looking at the powers that be and mm -hmm. the structures that seek to really dehumanize people in that power hungry way of as long as you do it for the crown, as long as you do it for the leader. And that that's a story where just keep living over and over again is when human stories get ground beneath, whether mm -hmm. it's the weight of prophecy or the weight of generations upon generations of monarchy, or it's the weight of American media and of the myth of American exceptionalism. Mm -hmm. It is so inescapable and in so many ways, utterly intractable. And again, yes. here we are in the midst of it, trying to talk and work and love and live our way through. Right, right. It is such a weight. And I, okay, so here's my hopeful heart showing up to say, I hope we are living through an era where those versions of power are changing. Mm -hmm. And that, that that's an old way of being. Mm -hmm. And that maybe, maybe we're starting to recognize it's a yoke we've all been suffering under that isn't necessary, that there can be other ways. And I think that's part of this era that we're living through 
of I didn't know that. The what? The really? You know, and it makes me wonder in, in Deirdre's time, did folks know what was going on? Who really understood the the king's intention? Right. That owning her and absolutely being overly powerful in her life course, he was trying to outwit fate, but also he just the hubris. Oh my gosh. That wasn't necessary. I, I don't see him as anybody trying to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. He was no, no. <laughs> he had taken the divine right of Kings and shoved it where the sun doesn't shine and was just light in his way. According to that, which I think means he was leading mm-hmm. with his ass. <laughs> yes. Yes. In that, you know, I, that helps me, you know, of course, sometimes you write things and they kind of come out as poetry and you don't even know why, but you're really sort of underlining, helping me realize like, right, that's why I started the story with really emphasizing when kings were kings and bards were bards and priests were priests. And that is, again, just sort of emphasizing what it was like to be in the room where it happened, to be at that center of power brokers, to say, okay, we are, because essentially it's royalty, the media and the religious class. Right haven't we just continued to replicate that in so many ways? And it's interesting, there were versions of this story in which there were great, even Deirdre and Nisha themselves would travel with a hundred men and women and that they Mm -hmm. would go here and there. And there's other versions that are much more stripped down and intimate. Mm -hmm. So it would be possible to play with this story and say, oh, there were people who knew because though in my version, it was just the brothers and Levaracham and the couple who took off Sometimes they went on like a great, it was like a great parade around Ireland mm. where all these other kings had to put them up, which is its own kind of other separate story. Mm-hmm. And in more modern versions, it was just a couple of individuals against the power of the crown. Which is so much easier for the power of the crown to snuff out. Almost a cautionary tale then about don't even try. Don't go to the protest. Uh, eh, you don't even need to bother to vote. Looking back to realize that the versions I'm quoting from the are from the early 20th century by Irish writers, but we talk a lot now about that threat of toxic individualism, right? And how that's certainly very much part of the American way, but it's part of a modern way too that says, in some ways, it's like, all right, baby, it's you and me against the world. We're going to like Bonnie and Clyde and jump in the car and take off. Yeah. They didn't end too well either. But that sense of being removed from community and not Mm -hmm. having those supports, which is certainly Mm -hmm. something that so many of us suffer from now in our nuclear families and our own mortgages, our own four walls. Everyone has their own lawnmower and everything else they need to take care of their own patch. Right. Post living communally. Tiny little fiefdoms that suffer. Yes. Yes. Suffer alone. And yet hearing the story again, it does broaden that scope that if my heart can connect with Deirdre's pain and tragedy, isn't that that best shared campfire storytelling experience that we all get to nod our heads and have our own versions of, mm, I know this, this feeling, I know my own inner Deirdre of the sorrows. Uh, it's a place that we all can commune. And I think that that's part of been my own growing and learning with grief is that it isn't 
a singular. I, for me, being 32 at the time, it was definitely, I didn't know these things could happen, let alone to me. But we're all going to experience loss. We're in the season of change. The leaves are falling. It's that that time that we're reminded again in a connected way to nature that death is a part of our lives. And that trees that grow in a grove are so often so much more healthier and more robust than the one tree that has to stand alone atop the hill. Of course. Of course. Yeah. I'd love for you to say a little bit more about this sort of sense of collective grief of that sense of and grieving in community. Those might be two different topics, but there's things Mm -hmm. you and I have sort of touched on a bit in our previous conversations around knowing that a lot of your work is for that sense of grieving an individual. Mm -hmm. And then we also talk a lot about what these bigger grief stories are that we share. And I just love for you to talk more about that. Sure. Well, I think that the collective grief, I really believe we are in an era of collective grief that with the, the knowing and the learning that we're all experiencing and seeing the man behind the curtain politically. And in so many other ways, the climate crisis, there's, inescapable grief. And I think that we can take heart and knowing that if we read an article about climate crisis and feel just devastated and unsure and terrified, we're not alone. There were millions of other eyes that read that same article and are feeling the same way. And how do we energetically walk through this life knowing I'm not alone in this experience, somehow it, that it always lightens that load. There's something about, yes, knowing that the roots are intertwined in this grove of humanity, that we, we don't have to suffer in silence or splintered off alone, that what we're feeling is shared by many. Mm-hmm. I think too, that, that the more we're, we're out and proud about that, the less it makes it possible to just go off in silence and suffer. Your, your sadness is welcome. It's not an unwelcome part of you. That is a, a soapbox space for me, certainly in my work, is your pain doesn't scare me. And so often I think that we, we show up you know, as a Deirdre with apology instead. Like, I'm so sorry, me and my, my dark clouds over my head. I'm really, I'm sad today. And I feel terrible about that. Well, that's enough that you feel sad that you're going through grief, but we have this toxic positivity in our culture that the thing that we all are are told we're supposed to feel 24 seven is happy. And that's so not possible. And it's, it's not even good. Right. Some ways it's like, oh, well, isn't that what we're all striving for? No, I've begun to, to really embrace that the sadness I feel at times just connects me to depth, Mm -hmm. to the truth of this human existence. And that's not a bad thing. It's not necessarily an easy thing. Do I like to laugh? Hell yeah. I love to laugh. That, that's easy too, but the bigger work for me in my lifetime has been to, to fight the message that uh, sad is bad. No, it's right. not. Yes, yes. And I know you and I certainly both admire Susan Cain's work with bittersweetness uh, and that whole essence of melancholy as a temperament that is 
legitimate. Yeah. And that was certainly, it spoke to things I felt I'd always known at some level. But as I was writing this story, it was like, oh, right, that there's permission for this story to exist. This isn't, and of course, it's interesting too, writing as I do from the Irish tradition, there's that sort of stereotype around that maudlin Irish perspective mm. of the, oh, bagosh and bagora nonsense yeah. that comes, which it's probably it's it's a drinking culture that starts off mm. real real happy and everyone's having a grand old party and then by the end at least half the folks are crying in corners, mm. which is the nature of alcohol and it's mm -hmm. the nature of living under colonization. It's the nature yes. of living in a land that has been as destroyed. I mean, it was, it, just as a footnote, one of the most environmentally altered spaces on the planet is Ireland. It's a yeah. desert at this point. That entire country was covered in forests. And now it mm. is a, an entire island of one tree hills because by the colonialists, all the trees were knocked down and it was turned into grazing land. Right. So just a small footnote on that sense of, yes, all the ways in which environmental grief and climate grief are always present throughout the ages. Mm -hmm. But what if we have permission, as you say, to say sad is not bad. It's such a easy and perfect little <laughs> phrase. It is, and yet it's it's revolutionary, isn't it? Mm -hmm. It's definitely not yet woven directly into the collective, although I'm working on it. The story of of the Irish grief, too, I have to share. I love Padre Gotuma's poetry mm -hmm. and his readings and tellings of so often his experience in Ireland. And he shared in one of his episodes about in the language translation, we don't in Irish say, I am sad. We say the sadness is upon me. To Brown Orm. And mm -hmm. oh, how I love that. Yeah. Because there, as a culture, then there is an experience that, that you aren't a tragic figure if you're experiencing something sad and terrible. It's just upon you, which means there's hope that it will leave you, right. that it's not a permanent stain on your soul. Right. It's like Irish weather. <laughs> yes. Wait five minutes and it'll change. Because I think that's another part of our collective Western idea of, of emotion is mm -hmm. we feel happy we stay there forever. And that's the goal. We're always striving to get to, to that. And I, I just really believe in my soul. I've seen how that makes depression. That makes us feel terrible. There's no permission then to feel the whole rainbow of emotions, including and especially sadness and grief. Right. At the risk of saying something really out of left field, it mm. just something I saw just this morning on Twitter was this the neoliberal ideal that we've been mm. living under for the last century or so. I, I don't have my history quite straight on this, but that sense, which really was about progress and capitalism and this real shift towards everybody can have everything as long as they're mm -hmm. white and Western, mm. and at the cost of so many peoples around the world. And that it's seen that in some ways despotism and the new shift towards totalitarian leaders is a direct result of that sort of obsession with progress would be how I would put it and to connect what you're saying. If we're supposed to be happy and stay happy, we need to make sure every day is a 10 forever. What more stuff do you need to buy? What people from around the world do you need to exploit in order to have more and more and more so that you never lose 
that I'm a 10 and more high. Right. Right. As you just laid that out, doesn't that just sound like a recipe for addiction? Hollowness, the hungry monster that, that never is sated and satisfied. Yes. Mm -hmm. Which is pretty much the king in this story writ large. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So we've covered a whole heck of a lot in a short conversation. <laughs> I want to land us with, with love. I want to mm -hmm. land us with the connection, I think, between, well, between Deirdre and Nisha, but I want to just land us with love. So what can you give us from your great cauldrons of wisdom to help mm -hmm. us call back there and land there? Oh gosh, I would love to gift everyone the biggest, widest open field of permission to feel what you feel. Love what you love, love who you love, love deeply, love courageously, and trust that whatever you feel is necessary, is part of healing, and is welcome. It's okay. And that is a way you can love yourself, you can love others, and you can love your life. I feel like that leaves us right as Deirdre and Nisha connect through that wall. And she's just mm -hmm. standing right outside with him with the great fields around them and everything's possible. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, Melinda, thank you so thank much. You. Can you tell us a little bit about how folks can find you and work sure. with you and learn from you? Yes. So my latest adventure is, especially through this pandemic time, I recognized how we, again, feel like we're alone in our losses. And so I've created a new space called The Nature of Grief. So thenatureofgrief.com is where you can find me, where I'm offering a, a membership for folks to participate in connecting with the healing power of nature and community as we, we work together to just express and be in the healing process where we connect with love and loss and hope. So that's where you can find me. Oh, beautiful. Uh, I highly recommend your work to anyone who is suffering through the darkest, hardest places and that search for the everyday bits of light. So thank you so much for being with me today. Thank you, Maurice. It was an honor to be with you and Deirdre. Thank you for listening to Not Work Storytelling. Please subscribe and review the show on your favorite podcast platform and do share this episode with other lovers of myth and story. By the way, everyone is a lover of myth and story, even if they've forgotten. You can find out more about my writing, my book, my courses, and how to work with me as a coach, as well as my online community, The Heroine's Knot, at marisagowdy.com. Follow the show on Instagram at Knotwork Podcast and join our listeners group on Facebook. Gratefully, I live, write, work, and record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Muncie Lenape tribe, whose name means original people. Remember, ancient stories are medicine for our modern maladies, and your stories can help heal the past, anchor us into the present, and create a more beautiful, sustainable future.